Welcome back to Beers and Careers, everybody. Mark Agostinelli here. And as always, Beers and Careers is brought to you by the Davis Companies, www.davis.davis.com. That's www.davisco.com. Uh, talent is in high demand. If you've picked up a newspaper or read the news at any point in time in the last year, uh, talent's in high demand, and the folks at Davis can help you find the right specialized IT engineering and manufacturing talent. So check them out. Uh, today's podcast guest is Megan Downey, co-founder um, of Shiki Rap. Shiki Rap just won a New England uh, Innovation Award. Um, she's been published and listed in Forbes. Um, but I think her accomplishments uh, are just part of the story here. Uh, it's it's an awesome story. You know, grew up as a kid that had a family restaurant, and she's been working from a really young age. And she fell on some pretty hard times early in her life, and it really focused her um, to pursue something that she could give back to her community. And Shiki Wrap is a sustainable fabric uh, organization that's domestically manufactured and someone who has thoughtfully curated all aspects of her business to run a really ethical company. So um, she's an incredible woman. Uh, I was really pumped to have her on. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Check it out. Uh, Megan, in true Beers and Careers fashion, welcome Cheers. Yes. What do you have in that cup? So sadly, I have coffee in this cup. Um, I, I have to drive after this because I am fulfilling uh, rewards for Kickstarter backers for my mm-hmm. startup and actual orders. <laughs> um, so I got to drive after this. So. No worries. It's a Monday, and I just got back from Christmas party we had at our office. Uh, down south. This will be released a little later, so we're in the Christmas spirit here at Davis, so I'm on the water as well. So don't uh, don't worry about it at all. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Much appreciated. Uh, we were connected um, through a mutual uh, through one of my colleagues and someone you've kind of worked with tangentially. And I must admit, as a guy who went to St. Mike's, I love looking up someone and seeing Shelburne, Vermont, there. So that was a uh, that was a nice little treat, I must say. Yeah, I heard uh, one of the podcasts where you talked about your experience at St. Mike's and um, your favorite professor, Bob Lair. Yeah, I like I love Bob Lair. Was a great guy. Certainly, uh, probably the biggest challenge to my thinking when I was there. You know, mm-hmm. the as a business major, there was a lot of technical stuff that made sense and was kind of like, yep, ingrained. And then it got to his class and it was like question everything and. Uh, I was like, oh, God, <laughs> I was not so so out of my comfort zone. So I really loved it. Yeah. Really so, loved it. so important. One of uh, our dear friends is um, the it's a couple and the husband uh, is a professor at St. Mike's. He teaches psychology. So we like oh. St. Mike's. Yes. Right. Very cool. Love my time there for sure. So um, before we get into it, I want people to get to know you and what you've done. We do. I do need to know, since it's beers and careers, what is your favorite cocktail or drink? So, yeah, non-alcoholic. I live on coffee, but uh, alcoholic drinks. I really enjoy a, a fine stout, um, the kind of stout where you have one and it feels like you just drank a loaf of bread. <laughs> yes. Yes. There, and I feel like the last time I was up there, I was drinking a coffee stout. Oh, really? Yeah. And I'm very upset. I can't remember right now. In fact, my friends who listen to this are probably going to make fun of me. Darn it. All right. Awesome. I love that. First stout, I think, on the podcast. Oh, wow. 
Okay. We're like 45 episodes in or 40, your first step. That's impressive. Um, are, do you swear? Do you have any curse words you use? I do. Um, yes. So of course the F, the F bomb is, yeah. is the one, but, um, but I will say because I know you talked about your Catholic education. I don't know if you said yes. Catholic high school as well or a Catholic. I did, go, I did go to Catholic high school. Okay. So I was raised, I went to Catholic school growing up, but my parents couldn't always afford Catholic school. So even worse, I transitioned back and forth between Catholic school and public school. So I was like the really, I was like the prude in public school, but then I was like the bad girl in Catholic (laughs) school. So that was my experience. Anyway, so why am I saying that? So in terms of swearing, even saying, oh my God, is, you know, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. So I have like all this baggage around it, but yet that is probably the most, even though it's not quite a swear. No. Feels like a swear to me, and I, I sure do say it a lot. It's a, right, and you got to catch yourself too. Yeah, it really offends people like more than actual swear words do. I found. Yeah, uh, um, I'm right there with you. Are you a quote person by any chance? Do you like quotes? Uh, I do have a couple of favorites. Um, I mean, probably the one that is most relevant right now for me um, is "Go and wake up your luck." Ah, uh, yes. Big fan of that. I think I just, in one of the last couple podcasts, I just said uh, how I love the Thomas Jefferson quote. Um, I'm a big believer in luck, and I find the harder I work, the more I have of it. Yeah. So kind of same, along yeah. the same lines. There's, I'm probably butchering it, but it's something of that. Yeah. Degree. So, and and then the most important question on a beers and careers podcast is, what was your first job? So my dad owned a restaurant. And we lived above it when I was like seven, eight years old. And so even though I wasn't technically on the payroll, I would actually legitimately work, which was usually it was expediting food. But I actually was also behind the bar. And that was back in the day um, when they would have like those brushes to clean the glasses, the spinning brushes. Yes. And that was like super cool for me to like take glasses and put them over the brushes and like Basically, if anybody that looked like an inspector came in, they got me out from behind the bar. But that is too funny. Where did you grow up? Are you a Vermonter? No, uh, no Milwaukee, actually, okay. Wisconsin. Cool. Very cool. Well, that, I mean, that's kind of a nice segue. Take me from w- Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to Shelburne, Vermont. Can I get the the cliff notes on how you got to where you got? Yeah, I'm. Um, so I grew up in Milwaukee, uh, moved to the Evanston area right outside yes. of Chicago. Um, when I was a teenager, um, and then, you know, ha- had some family issues and so actually experienced some homelessness as a teenager in the Chicago area. Okay. Um, but then ended up, and we can talk more or less about this later, whatever, but, um, ended up working for nonprofit organizations after college, getting, getting myself through college. Um, and did that for a long time. Um, went through, got married, had a bitter divorce, like ugly divorce, mm-hmm. um, had a, a, my daughter was young then and envisioned just like a different quality of life for her, um, moved to Vermont when she was four. Um, yeah, there's a lot in there, but yeah. those are just high level, ended up yeah. in Vermont about uh, 10, 10, 11 years ago. How did you choose Vermont job? 
Yeah, initially it was job, but it was also just quality of life for my daughter. Um, I actually, I was, you can't just leave, especially after a bitter divorce. You can't just pick up and leave, uh, for any reason. So I had to actually research all sorts of aspects of, uh, quality of life in Vermont in order to be able to, to move here. So. Yes. No, that makes, that makes sense. And as someone who's, I guess I can say I've lived there, even though it was through the lens of college. Uh, man, the quality of life is high. Yeah. I, my wife and I are always like elbowing each other when we're driving home from Vermont being like, why, what are we doing? But, uh, I love, I love it up there. So that there is a lot to unpack there. You do. I, I also want to touch on the fact that you, you just mentioned your Kickstarter campaign, but also your startup that you've got going and you've got a, Real job. So can you tell, tell, talk to us right now? And by real job, I mean a bill paying job. Bill paying. All jobs are real because being a mom is real too. Uh, (laughs) and and maybe actually pays you the most. Who knows? Right. Um, but can you talk to me about what you're doing right now and how you're kind of balancing all that? Yeah. Um, well, so yeah, so I am right now. So what is paying the bills is I'm a consultant to nonprofit organizations. Um, uh, through a couple of different firms, but, but my main affiliation is Tier Mullen Watkins and Brandt, which is a Chicago based firm. Okay. Um, get to work with clients all across the country, uh, in that capacity, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, when the pandemic hit, I lost one of my biggest clients, like the client that I was, I was back and forth between Vermont and DC. I was living the consulting life. And that was after having, you know, another earlier career drama that had happened um, and, you know, had built up my consulting career, but then the pandemic hit lost that uh, client because they had to shut their doors um, and they were no longer focused on a $70 million comprehensive campaign. Um, And, I said to my husband, I said, I think I want to make a go of this idea that I had had because I suddenly had this time. I mean, it's not like I had a ton of money, but Mm -hmm. I had time um, and I needed something to focus on. Um, And so that's how I started down this road with Shiki Wrap, which is a reusable gift wrap, uh, which is actually printed on a soft, stretchy fabric, which is derived mm. from uh, recycled plastic. And from what I understand, it's inspired by Eastern tradition, correct? It's inspired by the Japanese tradition of furoshiki. Um, okay. It is uh, different from traditional furoshiki in a number of ways, and but this is why I've called it cheeky wrap and not Megan's wrap or not mm-hmm. Vermont wraps, right? It, it, I'm trying to center the tradition you know that in the hopes or at least authentic voices in the tradition with the hopes that this could be an on-ramp for folks that may not know about froshiki of course there are there are many people in the west that have been using fabric for you know who are crafty um yes. their own gift bags and stuff and that's great um but i definitely wanted to um honor the tradition of froshiki because this is truly deeply inspired by it what what inspired the idea for you like how did you like, I know, I know you had time. I, I understand the like operational, like now is the time, but like, how did you even get there in the first place? 
Yeah, I mean, I was truly trying to solve a problem. I mean, I am the target market for this. I am a sustainable-ish, you know, yeah. working mom. Like, I'm on my journey. Let's say everybody's on their journey of sustainability. Right. Um, and I was co-chairing my daughter's uh, school PTO fundraiser. We were actually trying to find an alternative to um, the kind of low-quality items that are typically sold in those fundraisers and most of them are not produced domestically are very expensive um yeah and not high quality so my co-chair and i had had tried to create a local alternative um for those items so we were selling vermont chocolates and um you know local items uh at basically as wholesale for a fundraiser for the school but i could not find an alternative to the top seller which was paper gift wrap um, and that That's led me on, on a search, um, on a search and down, down the road we went. Down, down the rabbit hole from there. That's pretty, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. When you were doing it, like how, how long was like the research problem? Cause it's interesting. I had an entrepreneur on, um, Jared Stenquist, his podcast just came out and, and he is startup world. He's on a second. And I was like, what would you do differently? And he's like, I wouldn't wait around and hope to be inspired. I would solve a problem. So I'm pretty interested that like your answer was I I'm solving a problem kind of thing. Like how much research went into that? Because I know it's obviously you're volunteering for the PTO, right? So it's like, and, and you, you know, obviously with the pandemic and the perfect storm of time and stuff, but like how long did you put into researching the product fit and that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I will say something. I don't know if you've heard this with others that you've talked to, but there is something strange that happens uh, with startup founders, especially sole founders. And I don't I don't have any co-founders. It becomes an obsession. Yeah. And I, I never this was not in the plan at all. <laughs> um, at all. But um, so in terms of how much time. It's sort of because it becomes an obsession, time sort of loses meaning, which time lost meaning during the pandemic anyway. But what I did know is as a white woman founder of this particular startup um, in a country with a history of imprisoning Japanese Americans on our soil, you know, <laughs> and and trying to start this with on the backdrop of the social and political reckoning that was happening in this country, I knew that I wanted to um, be very thoughtful in every decision I made. So it wasn't as much research, like, let me let me do a bunch of market research, because I knew that the problem was there. I had a yeah. pretty good sense of, you know, being the target market and having, I did put kind of a focus group together, um, but it was more, how do I build this in a way um Ideally, so that I don't have to apologize later because I have centered authentic voices, have made pains to, even though I'm not, I don't have any employees right now, but contractors yes. that I work with, making sure that they do not look like me. Um, you know, that doesn't, anyway. So, yes. and, and making truly sustainable choices, which is challenging when you're, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing. You know, you, you have more power when you're at scale. Um, yes. That. But if, if this is going to scale, the only way it's going to scale is if people understand there's no greenwashing going on. And so that means that every choice you make has to be sustainable. So mm. have you um, 
what's been the hardest decision you've had to make kind of caught between the, uh, the practical business and the ethical decisions and value system you, you live by? I think the hardest um, th- challenge, I mean, I don't know if it's the hardest thing, but the challenge was starting this during a pandemic in Vermont when people were not networking. Right. I, I mean, I, it was just really challenging to find authentic voices, mm. understood the tradition of Furoshiki. So I actually reached out to an author of a book that I, uh, on the topic, who's in Japan, reached out to her and she and I started a dialogue. Um, and I wanted to see, did she have contacts here? You know, were there first yeah. experts here? Um, anyway, um, so I have slowly made progress and definitely after the pandemic, you know, as things open up, we're still in the pandemic, but as things opened up, I've certainly been able to network more. Um, mm-hmm. So were, were you uh, just knowing the uh, making generalizations about, I think Vermont in general tends to be pretty sustainably focused, right? And the, and the, and the folks that are living there are definitely thinking about things a little longer term than maybe other parts of the country. Was your plan at one point to also maybe be selling this at like all the local markets? Cause that's still unique. Like there's so many farmers markets and like community focus points, which is like, you know, I'm only four hours south, but we, try to do that but we don't have it at the same scale but we trying to get the product into that and did the pandemic totally i mean obviously it halted that but like or what was your strategy was it always internet my strategy yeah it was really the d2c channel was really important to me initially um i developed it got into a couple of accelerator programs and started oh. to refine the b2b strategy and i agree with you that being in some strategic locations where ideally where you're wrapping for people. So they don't, they're not reading about, like it's literally shown to you, demonstrated Mm -hmm. is going to be really important um, Mm. for this. But um, no, I would say year one, I mean, 2020 was all about how do I make, it was starting from researching sustainability in the textile industry and how, how many issues there are, even if you use organic cotton, like you can end up using a bunch of water and like, I was developed, this was from the beginning in 2020 to figure out, and then how do you manufacture a product? Should you do it domestically? Yes, I, I, you know, but what are the challenges of doing it domestically? So I really was figuring out, I wasn't dreaming about farmer's markets at that point. I was figuring out what am I making and, and can I be assured that people other than, you know, my aunt will purchase it, like will separate themselves from their money for it. Uh, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. You were way more focused on operationalizing than the romantic part of actually selling it. Did, did you find? Have you looked back? I know it sounds like you made the decision to manufacture domestically. Is that fair? I did uh, initially. Yep. And you know, I'm open to. It, it's just that with the global carbon footprint and things. I mean, in a perfect world, I would con- have more control over the means of my production, and I'd love to bring that manufacturing here and be mm. vertically integrated, uh, which is a, a whole business strategy. Some people think that that's crazy. Uh, and, you know, why don't you just make it in China or India? Right. Um, I've it's yeah, we, we don't need to go down all the reasons. Right. No, no, I a hundred percent. I was actually, I didn't know if you were still doing it. I was asking if the supply chain challenges have, have affected your business currently. 
Well, while it's true that my inventory was not stuck on a ship somewhere, my yes. inventory was weeks later, there were issues with actually my manufacturer, and this is my second manufacturer, mm. uh, actually being able to produce it. So yeah. I was literally coaching them through what temperature the heat press needed to be for part of the ocean. I was like, why am I? What? what? Why are you asking me this question? Right. Like in, in, in so many films, like the first of all, the challenges of manufacturing in general, no matter what they are. And then also the challenges of like a true soul founder startup, like you're working on operationalizing plans and then also have to know the technical details of how the thing is made. Like it's a it's a, uh, a lot of juggling going on. A lot of juggling. How, how do you stay sane with all of that? I think it's questionable whether any of us are sane. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best answer to that question I have gotten. This is the truth. No, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to have, uh, you know, family. Uh, my daughter is 14 years old. Um, she's amazing. My husband is incredibly supportive. My family, even though my family doesn't have a bunch of money, they haven't been like, Megan, let me give you all the capital you need. But they have, you know, been hugely supportive. And then early customers have been evangelists, which is exciting. And then these accelerator programs and then the not to be too, but the New England winning the New England Innovation Award was it's like most days in, is are really, really hard and you have to be yeah. so resilient and have tenacity. But once in a while you get a, a day like November 3rd and you're like, ah, this shot, is shot, shot in the arm. And I'm so glad you went there. Talk to me about, um, how, how you got involved in the innovation awards, why you chose to participate that and, uh, and kind of can you maybe also just explain it for people who aren't familiar with, uh, that program in the New England area? Cause we've got people listening from. Yeah, Fortunately, across the globe. Actually, that's amazing. That's great. Yeah. So um, the Eddies, now now known as the Eddies, formerly the New England Innovation Awards, um, it's in its 36th year, um, and it's a competitive, but but I would say you know cooperatively competitive yes. program for startups. Um, and there's a couple of rounds of judging, and it culminates in an awards night uh, where one startup in eight different categories um, is is deemed to be the winner. And um, but I would say one of the big benefits to it, which is why I put Shiki Rap's hat into the ring at all, is that because I did feel pretty isolated as a sole founder and I had tapped into Vermont's wonderful, great ecosystem here. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, a middle aged woman with her reusable gift wrap, not as sexy to some of the investors as uh you know, as if I was building an app. Like, I swear, if I just said I was building an app and had no details, that'd be far <laughs> in some ways. It's I get I get I mean, there's a uh, there's a gravy train that people want to jump on. Yeah. And I, I wanted it to be clear, like, no, this isn't my side hustle. This is yeah. a startup that I'm founding because I believe it can help us to build a circular economy and completely disrupt or disrupt rather the paper gift wrap market. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, I think you just came up with your slogan, disrupt. (laughs) Disrupt. There you go. There you go. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I love, I mean, you can feel the passion, you know, so I, I completely appreciate that. Do you, do you have mentors through this process? Like obviously through the innovation awards, they have like, they assign that kind of stuff. And I know about that, but do you have other folks that you're leaning on beyond your family? 
Oh yeah. Um, through the launch uh, VT accelerator program here, I was matched with Jim Feinson. He was the CEO for many, many years of Gardner Supply. Okay. Um, being matched with him just completely, I mean, they call it an accelerator program. I'd say working with him has truly helped me to accelerate my understanding of aspects of the business that I um that I need need to understand that I just didn't even know that I needed to understand uh, before working with him. So he's been amazing. Um, and then, yeah, I, you know, people, the great part about Vermont is that people are pretty approachable. Um, yes. And, you know, usually it doesn't, it's not usually even six degrees of separation. It's usually one or two um, where you can, you can find somebody who's supportive, but the new England innovate, the Eddie's and the new England innovation awards it's just a wider network with more gifted people who care about entrepreneurs and, mm-hmm. and startups. And um, so I, I'm eager to, you know, get any and all of the wisdom and uh, support that I can as a sole founder. So no, that, that makes, that makes a ton of sense as someone two years in now or almost two years in uh, what do you wish you knew when you started? Um, that's a tough one. Um, what do I wish I knew when I started? I mean, I don't wish I knew how hard it would be or how much time it would take. I would not have wanted myself to know that. Um, okay, here, here it is. And I got this advice at some point, and this is what I'm trying to hold on to. There's going to be way highs, high highs and low lows. Mm. And and what you need to do is no matter what happens, assume that things are probably not going to be as amazing as you think they're going to be. And they're probably not going to be as horrible as you think they're going to be. So like when Shiki Rap was, uh, was featured in Forbes, I was like, this is it. I made it like Shiki Rap. Right, right. <laughs> to the moon, to the moon. Right, right. which it was great. It, it's great, but it's not, it's not going to be a big anyway. Um, I know it's not, it's not like it's a cheat code. Right. right? It's one right. thing along the way. That's a, that's really interesting. My, I played the cross at St. Mike's and I, I was very fortunate. I, I, Paul Schmuller, who is unfortunately no longer with us was my coach. And, uh, and he drilled into us real early on, never get too high and never get too low. So yeah. it's like, I have a picture of me. It's like, I cannot, I, that is burned in my brain because on the bad day, more on the bad days, right? It's like, it takes maturity on the good days to be like, okay, pinch yourself. This is, this is an anomaly on the bad days. It's like when things are going wrong, man, it feels like they are going, they, they no, it couldn't get worse. And then you, then like you look at it a week later and you're like, well, actually exactly. wasn't that bad. The emotions really cloud judgment. Yep. Um, exactly. which is, which is, and I think it's harder. I think it's way harder for someone who's like the sole employee of the organization too, because like it is, you're emotionally wrapped up to it. Like I've realized as I've, uh, my career has changed and I lead other leaders now, it's a little, it's actually almost, it's starting to become, and I'm not good at it, but it's starting to become easier to pause when I hear bad news and just be like, you know what? It's not that, it it won't be that bad. Like this isn't going to kill us. Because I'm not emotionally related to the front line as much. Whereas when you get news from the front line, um, there's, it's one perspective, right? So I can only imagine in your yeah. world, 
dealing with that mental. Well, and concurrently, I'm the mother of an adolescent, right? <laughs> adolescent girl. So, um, you know, so I'm definitely that muscle is being worked of, okay, yes. stay even. Everywhere. That's why I love your response. You say, how do you balance it on? You're like, I, it's arguable. I'm not saying it's the best. It's the best. It's the best. Now, I, I, I must admit, you piqued my curiosity when I asked you about how you made it from uh, the Midwest to Vermont. You mentioned two pretty big, like the homelessness thing as a teenager and then also a heavy divorce. Now, I, I feel like that tells me you are a vulnerable and trustworthy person, right? You're just letting it all, like we haven't met each other and you're super forward with that, which I love and applaud. And But I also must imagine there's some formative experiences there that you lean on now because your personal and professional life are one. Like, can you, can you share why those, I don't want to, I don't want to call them highlights, right? Cause that's not right. But like, they certainly stick out for you. Yeah. I would say, um, you know, for a long time about other things in my childhood and other things in my life, I found them challenging to talk about because they would be weird. <laughs> they would, they were outside of the norm. Um, and just, I think experience with homelessness, I think it's a lot more common and divorce is a lot more common. Um, or, and people, more people talk about it now, but just generally I would try to construct a narrative without mentioning these like really critical aspects of the story. Like mm -hmm. I, I would just leave it out because I didn't want to make people feel uncomfortable or invite more probing questions, you know, or go to some emotional place. Now that I'm in my mid forties, I'm kind of like, well, how else am I going to, you know, especially giving cliff notes, like, yeah, I went through horrible right. divorce. Like, yeah. you know, adults, most adults know somebody who's had a similar experience and they go, okay, that makes sense. Um, I, I kind of get, um, you know, why the, the story moves on as it does. So I think I'm just a little bit more comfortable mentioning these things um, because I've lived through them. Do you find that, like, also, like, as you got older, you just realize that moments in time really have, they don't define you at all? You think yeah, that, I would say well, that's true of everybody. Yeah. 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 But I, I, I've also found out that everyone's on a different velocity towards that place. So it's, it's, you know, you could, I'm sure there's people who have dealt with what you've dealt with, but they're 70 or 80 and they're still, to your point, avoiding it. So I, that's why I just want to say, I, I, I thought, I think it's so cool that you just lean in. Like, I think that's awesome. Um, were you, was, was the, you mentioned homeless as a teenager. Was that like a long period of time for you? I will say it felt like an eternity. I mean, yeah. it was, it yeah. was, it was a little less than a year, a year and a half maybe okay. what you count. Cause you know, there was some couch surfing and there was some, but I mean, there was some literal on the streets or at a, at a coffee shop until they closed and then walking around until something opened the next morning. I mean, really painful, scary mm -hmm. times. Um, but what that did is, I mean, I, I wouldn't have ended up it working for nonprofits if I didn't have that experience because mm -hmm. What I tried to do is tried to call. I tried to get into a shelter, and I remember being being a teenager and trying to call like United Way or you know some of the organizations and saying, "Hey, I'm homeless," and being told, "Well, you need to be in school." And I'd already dropped out of high school at this point. Mm -hmm. um, you need to be in school in order to have a bed, or you need to basically all of these um, 
limitations that made for a high barrier and I, I couldn't access services. And that that made me determined, like, you know, F this, like, I'm going to yeah. I'm going to when I can, um, I'm going to change this. And so my first job out of college was working for a homeless services organization, uh, which mm-hmm. is now uh, called All Chicago. Um, beyond the inspiration to help the nonprofit, is it fair to say you built insane resilience from that experience? Because you have your BA, you have your master's. So like you clearly weren't a high school dropout who stayed that way. I don't know. I'd say there's a little bit of overcompensation happening there though. A little bit of like, um, imposter stuff. Like definitely my master's was, that was partly at work there. I was like, I got to get a master's to. So, I mean, I hope there's some resilience, but I'm, you know, there's, I've definitely reflected on some decisions I made and said, uh, maybe you were doing that because you wanted to appear a certain way and you didn't really need to do that. Yeah, So you're clearly introspective. Like how do you do that purposely? Like, is that a part of like a purposeful practice for you? Or are you like someone who walks their dog every day and that's when you think, or is it both? You know, I can't meditate to save my life, even though I believe that it's prob would probably be wise for me to try. <laughs> um, but no, but I do try to be, yeah, thoughtful, reflective and introspective. I, I try to do that. Mm. I, I have a anecdotal, interesting theory that the, and, I, and I've been so fortunate to talk to so many extra people because of the podcast, right? Like I get this whole new one-on-one and it's so interesting because on a podcast like this, um, like if you and I met at a bar, right? If we were at church street tavern, we probably wouldn't have brought the subjects up that we brought up. So not only do you get this one-on-one, but you get someone who like generally opens up, gets pretty vulnerable. I have a, uh, there's like a direct correlation in the people I talk to the, the higher level of introspective thinking about them, the decisions they make and calling balls on strike and balls and strikes and be like, oh, I like that. I didn't like when I did that and their personal confidence, it's like directly correlated. It's wild. It's, it's like, you're, and you're another example. Like when you, when you mentioned the homeless and divorce thing right away, I was like, Oh, she, she's got like, she leans in. So it's just very, it's such an interesting, I don't know if, what your thoughts are on that or if I'm crazy, but. No, I think it's it's an honor to be here talking to you. I mean, I agree. If we were in a bar, we probably wouldn't get to everything within 40 minutes right. uh, for, for the listeners. But, um, no, I think you're a great interviewer, too, and that's part of what's happening there. Um, and so you should give yourself credit for that. And I've listened, you know, really enjoyed listening to this podcast. And I love what you're trying to do. I love that people can just talk about their journeys, their non-linear journeys, Right. Um, because that's that's what's real. Um, and it's not all about careers. It's beers and careers. It is. It is. I, I feel like I really hope it's funny you say that because like I almost I hope that somehow this messaging and, and maybe this is like a future chapter for me in my life. But I we got to get this messaging into schools. Yeah. Like, like we got like that's how I because I. The reason I was so maybe inspired. milk and careers, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. We'll change up snacks, <laughs> snack time and career right. time. But like, I, I was just, I mean, and I maybe it was the parochial education too, right? Or having a, I have a father who was an engineer and like knew what he wanted to do when he was eighteen, and so he, it was actually like a running joke in my family when I'd like come home from college, 
and my dad would be like, what are you going to, what are you thinking about doing? And my mom would be like, it's been two weeks, Ralph, since you saw, like, it was like, he's not, he doesn't know. Leave him alone, kind of thing. But, um, and that was the inspiration for the podcast was I felt like the societal impact was like, you got to know what you're going to do and have a plan. And then you talk to all these people and they're like, they love, they love, I mean, you're grinding and you love what you do and you can hear the passion. And you didn't know you were going to be doing this. Like, no, like no way. So I think that makes a ton of sense. Do you, do you, what would you, what would you tell folks like on that topic? I mean, I think that's yeah. really the point of what I've tried to document or what we're trying to document because Andrea and the team at Davis have been so supportive of like the vision piece of it for people that are like either graduating high school or college or just dealing with things that they need to earn money. And some people kind of are, uh, you know, the, the, the mid career change is difficult. Yeah. Um, here's what I would say. Uh, don't stop just because you haven't figured out the through line of your pivot yet. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, when this whole gift wrap thing came up and I became obsessed with it, uh, and that was not in the plan. It wasn't until later that I realized, wait, there is a through line here and that I have always been passionate about gift giving mm-hmm. and paid work in the nonprofit world is about really philanthropy and facilitating meaningful gifts between donors and nonprofits. So like, it's not like it's totally in the same with um, Vera Wang, who's a, a fashion designer. Yes. Um, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to say that she is, but she was actually a figure skater and that was her passion. Oh, I didn't, no, I didn't know that. I had no idea. And then she, when she made the transition, she realized her passion was really for line. She loved line. And so that, that worked for her. And so, you know, if you're making this pivot and you're like, ah, oh God, this is totally different from what was in the plan. Even if you could just allow yourself the space and the time to follow it. And mm-hmm. you might figure out later, like that you might figure out that connection of. Yes what your through line is mm, I, I, that uh, that really resonates with me because I like I didn't know what I was doing getting into staffing like I had no idea and I took it I took it because I knew and it's terrible to say but as a 22 year old I was like I want to move out of my parents house and this is a, a gateway to money you know like it was that simple and then I was blessed to find out that it's completely relying on communication skills and meeting people and connecting people and connecting dots for people. And then they get the win and you can kind of look at it from afar. And I was like, oh, those are all things that I really like. And it's competitive. Like they just it, it hit a number of things on the scale for me. So that I mean. I'll take that advice. <laughs> I'll take that advice. Um, Meg, Megan, I really appreciate you coming on. This is awesome. This is an awesome thing. Thank you for your time. You're the second Vermonter. You're, I think, at ten years in Vermont, you're officially a Vermonter, right? Did they let you? They, they still, call, they still call you a Flatlander. Are you still a Flatlander up there? I don't know what they say about me behind my back, but I'm calling myself a Vermonter. That's what I uh, when I worked in. I worked a summer in Burlington, and so I got the real flavor of like being a non-Vermonter up there. And I was referred to as a Flatlander, and I was like, so if I lived here for my life, when would I convert? And they're like, oh, you have to be born here. You never convert. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. But uh, but as a second Vermonter, I will make sure to reach up because I'm reach out when I'm up there because I I I'd yeah, like to I I would love to meet you, and you know I get down to Massachusetts frequently, and yeah, oh, let's good. Do that. yeah.
Awesome. Megan, thank you so much for coming on. Have a wonderful rest of the uh, holiday season, and we'll catch you soon. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye.